I'll invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes 9. Wisdom's silent strength. Wisdom. A simple definition of wisdom would be truth applied. Truth applied. The word is used 222 times in our Bibles. It's a major theme of the book of Proverbs rooted in the concept of fearing the Lord. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. Wisdom is special because wisdom is an extension of the divine character. The man who gets wisdom is tasting of the divine. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding hath he established the heavens. The very same wisdom by which the Lord founded the earth, the very same wisdom by which the Lord established the heavens... When you look at the incredible design of the world around you, we talked this morning a little bit in our Sunday school hour about the fact that we live in a fallen creation, that man cannot even really comprehend what the the creation must have looked like because what we have now is so different than what it was, and yet its beauty, its majesty, its design is still so amazing. This was all erected by wisdom, the Bible says. By wisdom the Lord founded the earth. By understanding He established the heavens. This same wisdom is not just available to you and I, but the Bible calls for us to seek it, to find it, to live it. Now when we find this wisdom, it doesn't give us the power to create the worlds. But when we find this wisdom, it gives us the divine capacity, the divine wisdom, the capacity that created Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 says this. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. God wants you to have wisdom. And so today we are going to study wisdom. We're going to walk through Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 through chapter 10, verse 3. And it's going to talk to us a little bit about wisdom. And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about wisdom. Do you have it? How do you get it? Why do you want it? What are you going to do in order to find it? And this begins what, what we'll see as Solomon finishes the book of Ecclesiastes as several very important topics. We talked already about joy, right? And then we're going to talk about wisdom. And then we're going to talk about truth. Then we're going to talk about how to take joy, wisdom, and truth and bring them to bear in our lives. And the final call is an exciting call. Because really the final call is not so much to the older adults in this room, but to the young people. To give God of the strength of your youth. 
to learn these lessons while you're young. Because the younger you can learn these lessons, the more success, joy, and wisdom you can find. So we step into Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and verse 13 says this. Solomon writes, he says, This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. Solomon is about to tell you a story. He says, let me tell you a story. It's the story of wisdom that I've seen under the sun. Remember how that word is used in, in Ecclesiastes? That means it's wisdom that's operating in this earthly sphere. It's wisdom that's operating under the sun, on the earth. He says, let me express to you the power of wisdom. Let me illustrate to you just why wisdom is such an important and such a great thing. Verse 14, he says, there was a little city and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. The scenario here is as follows. A little city. There's few men in that city. Not every city is a big city by any means. We might liken it to this little church. So you have big churches and you have little churches. And one of the things that our little church has found is that because we have so few people, uh, that means there's few men, which means leadership uh, has had to take a little bit of a different form than maybe the ideal. We don't have enough men to have large uh, elder boards and, and committees and these sorts of things because there's just not enough people. We are a small church. We have few men within it. But a great king comes up against this city. And the Bible tells us that it was, that the city was besieged and he built great bulwarks against it. Now when we think of a bulwark, there's several different things that we can think of. One of the primary ways that the word bulwark is used is of ships. And it's effectively the, the external, uh, um, frame of the ship. By common definition, a bulwark is a defensive strategy where uh, cities would build up mounds of dirt against their walls in order that the walls could not be knocked down. But a bulwark is also uh, used, can be used as an offensive strategy where they build up mounds against the city wall in order to scale the wall. This was used quite regularly in the times of, in biblical times. Uh, it was used quite regularly um, in Roman times. It was used quite regularly in medieval times where effectively uh, armies would, after they had sieged a city, once that city is shut up, if they could not get through the walls, they would effectively build a mountain, a hill that would allow their siege works to get up to the top of that wall and then to uh, either get over the wall or to destroy the wall at a weaker point. And this is the idea of the text there. So it's a small city, but its walls hold. And so now it, this great king has besieged the city. He is attacking the city in order to get past the walls, knowing in particular that their capacity to fight back is minimal. The only thing standing between this king and the people in the city is the wall. They don't have warriors to fight. Our story continues, and it concludes quite quickly in verse 15. Solomon says, Now there was found in it, that would be the city, a poor wise man. And he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. So within this scenario, we have this poor wise man. We do not know anything about this man other than that he's poor and that he's wise. We don't know his name, as a matter of fact. 
Solomon says this man has fallen into the records of history as a forgotten man. We don't know whether he would have been a man of fighting age. By implication, maybe he was an older man. Typically, wisdom comes with age. But the implication of the text is that we would look at this man and perceive that he's not of a whole lot of use to a battle. However, he was wise. And this poor wise man, by his wisdom, not by his strength, not by his wealth, but by his wisdom, delivered that city from the king. And yet no man remembered him. There's no statue built in his honor. There's no holiday for him. Because it was his wisdom that won, not his might. He was not a man of volume. He was not a man that was deeply charismatic. He was a man of wisdom, quiet, unassuming. But he delivered that city from this great king. Now Solomon will move quickly past this illustration to get to his point, but I'd like to park on it for a few more minutes. While we know little else about this account, it is perhaps inspired by an event that took place during the life and reign of Solomon's father, King David. There are some noticeable differences between the account, not the least of which is that in the account that we're about to read in Samuel, the poor wise person is a woman, not a man. But we cannot say that this, and because of that, we cannot say that this instance is the exact one that Solomon is thinking of. However, the the parallels are so clear that I think it would be a disservice if we didn't link them together. And so this account takes place in 2 Samuel 20. Absalom's rebellion had failed. Absalom has been killed. That would be David's son who attempted to rebel and take the throne. This rebellion has failed, and now uh, David is seeking to restore himself, and the nation is going to restore David to his rightful place as king. But there's a man of the tribe of Benjamin named Shiva, and Shiva does not want to restore his submission to King David, and so he calls for the people of Israel to follow him instead. And every tribe, with the exception of Judah, David's home tribe, follow Sheba in this rebellion. David sees Sheba as a great threat. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that David sees Sheba as even greater of a threat than Absalom was. And so he tells his general to go and eliminate Sheba as a traitor for his insurrection. We pick up here in 2 Samuel 20, beginning in verse 14. The Bible says this, And he went through all the tribes of Israel unto Abel, and to Beth Meachah, and all of the Barites. This would be Sheba. And they were gathered together and went after him. That would be the armies that went after Sheba. And they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Meachah. And they cast up a bank against the city. That would be the bulwark. And it stood in the trench. And all the people that were with Joab, battered the wall to throw it down. Then cried a wise woman out of the city, Hear, hear, say, I pray you unto Joab, come near hither that I may speak with thee. And when he was come near unto her, the woman said, Art thou Joab? And he answered, I am he. Then she said unto him, Hear the words of thy handmaid. 
And he answered, I do hear. Then she spake, saying, They were wont to speak of old, uh, speak in old times, saying, They shall surely ask counsel at Abel. And so they ended the matter. I am one of them that are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Thou seekest to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why wilt thou swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. The matter is not so, but a man of Mount Ephraim, Shiva, the son of Bichri by name, hath lifted up his hand against the king, even against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said unto Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. And the woman went unto all the people in her wisdom. And they cut off the head of Shiva, the son of Bichri, and cast it out to Joab. And he blew the trumpet, and they retired from the city, every man to his tent, and Joab returned to Jerusalem unto the king. Pretty similar account, wouldn't you say? The historical account of the deeds of David's general Joab we find strikingly similar in parallel to Solomon's proverb here. Abel Bethmeacah was a city which, while walled in no way, would be able to stand against the king's military might. Joab cast up a bank. He put up a bulwark against the city and they were in the process of tearing down the walls of the city. Then they proceeded as they were tearing down the walls of the city to prepare to siege the city. Until the Bible says a wise woman intervenes. She stands at the wall. She calls out and she says, let me speak to Joab. And Joab says, I'm listening. And she begins to reason with him by giving him an old saying. It would appear the city of Abel had been famed in Israel as a city of great wisdom. While the men there may not have been men of great physical might, when people had problems, they would travel to this city of Abel to glean their wisdom. And such was this wisdom that the saying was coined, they shall surely ask counsel at Abel, And so they ended the matter. In other words, when you went to Abel and you asked counsel of them, the counsel they would give you would be so wise and so clear and so appropriate that that ended any argument right there. It was done. That's what you were going to do. So she asks us, are you really prepared to destroy a city in Israel, a faithful city, people that have done no wrong, people that love the Lord and, and, and love Israel? Are you prepared to destroy us? We haven't spoken against you and you haven't even spoken with us. You don't seem to care that we're fellow Israelites. Your mind is focused only upon our destruction. Well, Joab says, no, ma'am, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to destroy the people of Israel. I'm not here to destroy a city. I'm here to destroy a man. He tells her, I'm seeking a man who has rebelled against the king. So here's what I'll offer you. You find him and you give us his head and that'll be that. So the woman replies, we'll toss it over the wall to you. We're not going to open the gates. You'll come right in, but we'll toss his head over the wall to you. So she goes in. She tells the people in her wisdom, look, I've negotiated a deal. It's this guy. They just want this guy. You give him this guy, the rest of us are spared. So they chop off his head. They throw it over the wall. Joab gets his head to take back to David, and he leaves. Mission accomplished. In this, we find, as I've mentioned, striking similarities. This wise woman, what is this wise woman's name? History hasn't recorded it. No statues, no holidays, 
But this woman saved her city through her wisdom. It also echoes of a proverb that we studied several months ago now in Ecclesiastes 7. Verse 19, Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten men, ten mighty men, excuse me, which are in a city. That wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten men strengthen a city. Whether this account was in Solomon's thoughts or whether it was not, dwelling on our, uh, dwelling our minds upon it for a few more minutes helps us as Solomon applies. And he will apply here as we continue through the text in verse 16. Solomon says this, Then said I, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Solomon is troubled by a thought. He, he acknowledges something. And what he acknowledges is that having wisdom is better than having strength. Having wisdom is more effective to solve problems than having strength. My wife is a fantastic example of this. My wife is not a weak woman, but my wife is able to lift and carry things well beyond her capacity because she understands leverage really, really well. She just gets it. She understands how to, how to use leverage to her advantage. She is a, a woman who can, who can move things that, that I just look at and I say, how did you move that? And yet she does it because she understands leverage. She uses her head rather than using her size because she's not a big woman, but she uses her head and she can get things done. Wisdom, Solomon says, is better than strength. But it's not so much this concept that wisdom is better than strength that, that troubles Solomon. It's, it's the problem that troubles Solomon is this. That for all of the advantages and superiorities of wisdom, who is it that mankind always exalts? Who is it that, that when a man looks at another man and says, I want to be like that guy, it's, it's not the wise man that that man's looking at, is it? It's the mighty man. It's the powerful man. It's the honorable man. It's the rich man. It's the mighty man. The poor man's wisdom is despised. The wisdom is not heard. It's the mighty man that gets exalted. Humans naturally gravitate toward the fantastic, toward that which will capture our imaginations and excite our fancies. Wisdom isn't that. Wisdom is by its very nature strong in silence, effective in humility. May I put it this way? Wisdom can be boring. Can't it? Wisdom means if you've got a wise man and you've got a foolish man, the foolish man is the one that's going to be jumping off of cliffs and driving cars real fast and all of those things. And you say that's foolish. And yet that's what puts the smile on your face and <laughs> makes the memories, right? Not the wise man who says, I'm going to keep my feet on the ground. Wisdom doesn't get much attention because it isn't very exciting. And of this Solomon, a man of tremendous wisdom, is grieved. It is not that the world does not admire men with wisdom, for indeed there are many wise men whom the world admires. But for all of their admiration, have you ever noticed how rare it is that people actually listen to men of wisdom? Our country's leaders would still regard the founding fathers as men of tremendous wisdom. And indeed, it was the wisdom of our founding fathers that has given them the exalted place that they have in history books today. And yet, for all of the exaltation that our founding fathers get for their wisdom, is anybody listening to that wisdom today? Absolutely not. 
for all of the exaltation that the word of God is given as a book of wisdom, how many people actually obey it? Wisdom is not flashy. It's not exciting. It's strong in silence. People identify those with wisdom. They'll listen to those with wisdom, but more often than not, they walk away and decide that their ideas are still better, and so they despise wisdom. They don't hear the words. But that doesn't change the power, the dominance, the glory of wisdom itself. Verse 17. Solomon says, the words of wise men are heard and quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wise men don't have to shout because their words stand on their own two feet. The old adage goes that he who shouts the loudest is the one who is most heard, right? That a lie told for long enough becomes believed to be true. And we've seen these things come to pass even in our own culture and society. And yet the wise man's words stand on their own two feet. We, we often make this statement at Legacy Baptist Church that truth is self-validating. I don't have to spend all of my time attempting to prove things that are obviously true because truth proves itself. And what a waste of time it is to spend all of my time trying to prove that which is so obviously true. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to believe it. That doesn't mean people won't fight against it or utterly reject it, but that doesn't change the fact that truth is truth, does it? It's absolutely silly for me to spend all of my time trying to convince you that gravity exists, right? We're not floating right now. We are, we are in, uh, we, we are attached to the ground. You are attached to those chairs. I am attached to the ground. We are not floating in the air. Now, uh, I know that I'm not floating away. I can, tell that with my senses, which means something is pulling me toward the ground. As an academic exercise, I can certainly take time to define what that is. As a betterment to better understand what's going on, I can take time. I can understand that gravity pulls us down at negative 9.8 meters per second squared. I can do all of that. And that can be very helpful when I want to do things such as build airplanes and make rockets, shoot missiles. But to spend all of my time trying to convince somebody that doesn't believe that there is such thing as gravity, that there's gravity is really a waste of my time because the fact that we're not floating away means something is holding us down, right? It's a truth that's self-validating. Wisdom is self-validating. And so it can be heard in quiet. We live in a culture where people think their passion for something makes it right. They appeal to emotions in order to prove that they don't prove truth on facts. They prove truth on emotions. In other words, if I feel stronger than you about something, then that makes me right. We've seen it this past week, haven't we, with the gun debate that always comes up when there's a mass shooting. People say, if you don't feel a certain way, then you're a bad person. And that makes me right and you wrong. And so they are gauging truth on feeling rather than truth on facts. This is common among humanity. And in order to make feelings ma translate into truth, they have to shout loud and they have to be fervent and angry and they have to work themselves up because the truth doesn't validate itself. So they have to make it be validated through their feelings, through their emotions, through their passion. A wise man doesn't have to shout. Because truth validates itself. 
People believe if they say a lie loud enough and long enough, it becomes truth. Well, if you say a lie loud enough and long enough, people believe it, but that doesn't make it any more true. Wisdom doesn't need to be loud. It doesn't need to be repetitious because wisdom is truth. It stands on its own two feet. And God grant us that our hearts might yearn to know wisdom and to have the privilege of the kind of life that is led by wisdom. Because the words of a wise man are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Verse 18, Solomon continues, he says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. Here we begin to see a contrast, and this is the point. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Wise words and actions are greater than forceful words and actions. Wisdom can affect what material forces simply cannot, and often with far better results than even military might can produce. Now, Solomon's not saying there's never a time for such things. That's not his point. We're not saying that there's never a time for war. As a matter of fact, Solomon has already said in the book, there is a time for war, hasn't he? That's not what he's trying to say today. What he's trying to say is wisdom is better every time. Wisdom is better. And since this is the proverb which Solomon is teaching, it comes with a contrast, as proverbs often do. My wife and I were talking last night. I'm reading this book, and and, uh, uh, we were talking about some of the concepts in it. And we were talking about how so often many of the things that we understand in this life are defined by what something is not rather than what something is. And so Solomon, as well as many of the Proverbs, will often, uh, in order to help us understand something, will often give us what it isn't or will contrast it with something else to help us define what it is. And the contrast here is between wisdom and the sinner. In contrast to the power and effectiveness of wisdom, which is greater than weapons of war, Solomon says, we find that one sinner, not an army of sinners, not a city of sinners, but only one sinner can destroy much good. One wise woman saved a city in Second Samuel 20. One wise man saved a city in the proverb here in Ecclesiastes 9. One wise man, according to Ecclesiastes 7, is more valuable than ten mighty men in a city. And yet the opposite is also true, folks. That one sinner, one person who has cast wisdom away, can do so much damage. Can damage far more than just himself. One evil man can ruin the efforts of many righteous. One man who rejects wisdom and lives selflessly, thoughtlessly, sinfully can destroy so much good. This is the proverb. But Solomon continues the proverb. He elaborates on this proverb in chapter 10. Always remember that the chapter divisions in our Bible are not inspired by God. They were added later, the verse divisions, the chapter divisions were added later for understanding and reference purposes. Generally speaking, they did a good job at stopping the chapters, changing chapters along points of, around topics or around uh, important points as they understood and interpreted them. Yet there are times in our Bibles where I feel as though that chapter division can synthetically stop us from thinking along the same lines when we really need to continue right along the thought, especially in the epistles. If you're reading a letter, you don't interpret paragraph number three without consulting paragraph number two, right? You read it in form. 
Well, if those are letters that we're being get, that we're reading, then we should probably read them deeply in context. So we continue into chapter 10 this morning, and Solomon says this. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. When a fly lands in the ointment and dies, it spoils the ointment. The whole of the ointment does not necessarily need to be touched because it has been contam- the whole has been contaminated by the, the dead rotting fly. If we can put it in a way we might understand, when something that might carry a disease falls into your glass of water, you don't just scoop it out and say, okay, that's good. You, you probably dump out the water and get some new glass of water because the whole of the water might be contaminated. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Leaven, as we've talked about before, is often used in the Bible as a picture of sin, with the exception of one instance that Jesus uses it to talk about the kingdom in the book of Luke. Other than that, leaven is always seen as a picture of sin. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. A little sin getting into the life of even a wise person can destroy much good. And who is Solomon thinking of when he's thinking of that? Himself. Here's a man that was granted wisdom beyond any other man that lived. And yet his wives turned his heart away from the Lord and he lived years of selfishness and it destroyed much good in him. The sin that was in his life. No matter how much wisdom he had, no matter how much knowledge he had, that wisdom was eroded away by his lust. His desire for things, for this earth. And that's the context here. That's the concept here. A little leaven does not just leaven a small bit of the loaf of bread. If you put some leaven into a loaf of bread before you bake it, the whole lump is affected. So too, a little sin, even in the life of a wise man, or the influential sinner in the midst of a a group of wise men, can corrupt the whole. When a man of wisdom and honor allows a little folly, a little sin to take root in his life and to control him, it will corrupt every element of his decision making. It will shade the thoughts of his heart, the actions of his of his body. It will corrupt him. So Solomon continues in verses two and three. This will be it for our exposition this morning. He says a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but the fool's heart at his left Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to everyone that he is a fool. We turn here to a classic Near Eastern concept of the left hand and the right hand to gain an understanding of what is being said here. The right hand is a place of honor, favor, a place of help and of love. The left hand is a place of inferiority. My son's name is Benjamin. Benjamin is a Hebrew name. Uh, Jamin, which is my name, means right. The implication was regularly right hand. Ben, Ben, means son or son of in the Hebrew. And so Benjamin means son of my right hand. The son of an exalted position. The favored one. Or the son of the favored one. Of course, Benjamin being the son of Jacob's favorite wife, we would understand perhaps why his name was Benjamin in the scriptures. 
My son's name is Benjamin because my name's Jamin, so he's son of Jamin. But that's the idea. The right hand being the exalted position. Now, he said time again in our studies that we should not trust our heart, right? Jeremiah 17, verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But there's an interesting thing about the heart. The wise man does not rest his heart upon the whims of the lust of his flesh. The wise man guides and rests his heart upon the word of God. And so his heart follows God's heart. So when the, when Solomon says a wise man's heart is at his right hand, what that means is that when, when a man is wise, it's because his heart is working for him, not against him. It's because his heart is aligned with God's heart. And we'll see why when we define more about what wisdom is. The wise man's heart is aligned with God's heart. And so when I follow my will, my will is God's will. My heart is on my right hand. It's working for me. It's in an exalted position. The fool's heart is on his left hand. It's working against him. The fool follows his heart and his heart only wants what his lusts want. His heart follows his flesh. His heart follows this world. His heart is in the things of this world. And so it will betray him every time. The heart of the wise man does him credit and leads him into God's way. The heart of the fool does him injury and leads him into his own way. The way of the flesh. The foolish man walks from day to day and the very best his heart and mind have to offer him will fail him, spiritually speaking, because it's his, it's him. And those that see the fruit of his decisions, the direction of his steps will know by his actions that he is a fool. On the other hand, the wise man walks in the way of the Lord, and so his actions and their results will speak of his wisdom. I mentioned we stop here on our exposition today. Let's apply. I have several points for you today, and we're going to examine wisdom a little bit closer. Point number one, where is wisdom to be found? Wisdom is sourced in the fear of God. We must not forget this. There is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. I mentioned at the beginning that we would regularly define uh, wisdom as truth applied or knowledge applied. Have you ever noticed that there's a lot of people that have head knowledge, but it never really seems to get down to their heart? I've heard it described that the head to the heart is the longest 18 inches in the world. It's not necessarily easy to get things. Now, when we talk about our heart, obviously our heart is just, a, is just a muscle beating in our chest, right? It's all in the mind. But the Hebrews use this concept of the mind, the head, and the heart to show the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Between knowing things and believing things enough to apply them to our lives. And where is wisdom found? Where is that concept of knowledge translated into wisdom? It's found in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is the extent to which we choose to base our actions and our decisions on the truths of God's word. It's when we read God's word and we know who God is and we say because God is who he is and because he said what he said, I truly with all my heart believe that doing it God's way is what I need to do to be prosperous, to find the, the joy that God has promised and to find the success both in this life and the next that God has said we can have. And because I believe that, because I fear God, I'm going to obey him. And look, if you don't obey him, even if you know his word, if you're not obeying his word, it's because you don't fear God. 
It's because you don't fear God. Wisdom, the wise choice, is the choice that places first in priority what God thinks of any given action, of any given decision, of any given desire. When something comes across your mind, when you want to do an action, if the first thing that comes to your mind is what does God think, and that dictates what you say, what you do, or what you think, then you're fearing the Lord. If that comes after the fact, then it's because you're lacking the fear of the Lord. The wise choice factors God's will and God's word into everything. In Job 28, we find a great passage of scripture about wisdom. And it begins with a question. Whence then cometh wisdom? Well, that's our, that, that's our point, right? Where does, where, what's the source of wisdom? We continue. And where is the place of understanding, seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. God understandeth the way thereof, and he knoweth the place thereof. For he looketh to the ends of the earth and see, seeth under the whole heaven to make the weight for the winds. And he weigheth the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder... Then did he see it and declare it. He prepared it, yea, and searched it out. Here it is. And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The very purpose of this passage is to answer the question, where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. And as we studied at the beginning, it is a part of the essence of the divine nature Well, then the next question becomes, what does it mean to fear God? The word means to reverence or to respect. This kind of fear is not the kind of fear, it's not fear of the dark or fear of a beast. It's not the kind of fear that you would have a dog that's growling and he's big and he's angry right across from you and you're afraid that if you flinch in the wrong way, that dog is going to jump at you. That is not what it means to fear God. God does not want us to look at him as some divine, angry uh, God in the sky who's ready to strike us down with a lightning bolt when we do wrong. It's not that if we flinch the wrong way or think the wrong way, God is ready to destroy us and crush us under his boot. What it means to fear the Lord is more like we liken it perhaps to what it means to fear a police officer. A police officer is an authority in our lives. Police officers have the authority to stop us when we're driving, to put us in handcuffs, to take us to a, a, a jail, to put us before a judge. The police officer is your best friend as long as you're doing right. If, if the police officer is doing his job right, if he's doing what he's supposed to do, when you're in the right, he's your best friend. When you're in the wrong, he's your worst enemy. You fear him because of his authority, not because of him. Not because he's a bad guy or a nice guy or big or small. Or, that's not why. You fear him because of the authority that he has. And so when you're driving... And you see a police officer, you immediately check the speedometer. Because you want to make sure that you're, that you are in the right. Because you fear him. Now you're not afraid of him to where you swerve the car and run the other way. You're, you fear his authority. That's what it means to fear God. Not that he's gonna crush us under his boot but that he has the authority over us, that he holds the key 
to eternity that he holds in his divine wisdom and design success and failure, right and wrong, blessing and cursing. And you factor that into how you live in this life. So that when we're around a police officer, we don't break the law, right? You're not going to, you're not going to excessively speed when a police officer is right behind you. In the same way, now you might speed when the police officer's not there. I hope you don't, but you might. Because he's not there watching. Well, here's the thing. When is God not watching? When does God not see you? We have a word for God, omniscient, meaning he knows everything. We have another word for God, omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere at once. Which means when does God not see you and know what you're doing? Psalm 139 says, even the darkness cannot hide us from the Lord because the darkness is as light about us and about him. If that is the case, then if you fear God the way you fear other authorities in your life, you'll do right because you know he's watching. And if you don't do right, knowingly, willingly aren't doing right, it's because you say, God, I know you're there, but I don't care. I'm going to do this anyway. And that means you lack the fear of the Lord. And if you lack the fear of the Lord, the Bible says you are going to lack wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Children, you're not going to do the things your parents say you, that you cannot do when your parents are around. You might do it when they're not around, but you're not going to do it when they're around because they're there. It's the same concept. You fear your parents. Maybe you're not afraid of them so that when they walk into a room, you run away. I hope you're not. If so, parents, you need to change that. But your character, not them, you. But your children ought to fear you in your in the authority sense because you're a person of your word and you're going to do what you say you do. That's what it means to fear God. Depart from evil because you fear God, because you know he's there, because you know he's watching. Make a priority of God in your life because you know that he is watching, you know that he is there. And just to nail it down, let's read a few other scriptures. Psalm 111 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Doing his commandments is linked to the fear of the Lord because if you fear God, you'll obey him. And that's wisdom. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Why? Because they don't want to remember that there's a God, because if there's a God, then they're accountable and they want to be fools. So they cast off wisdom because wisdom proclaims the creator. Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Fearing the Lord is knowing the holy, the holy one, the one who is holy, the great judge. Proverbs fifteen thirty three. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. What does it take to get honor? It takes humbling yourself before the Lord. James says this as well. God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Wisdom is sourced in the fear of God. If we want to know where wisdom can be found, it's not. There, there's a lot of great things, interesting knowledge to be found in history books and math books and philosophy books. But wisdom is found in the living book. It's found in the word of God. 
And if you want it, you need to go to the source. Love the source. Fear God and depart from evil. Number two. First, wisdom is sourced in the fear of God. Wisdom is granted by the will of God. Wisdom is found in the word of God and the way, and the way of God and the character of God. But I want to point out something else very important about wisdom. Wisdom is something that you gain as a gift from God. Now we learn from the word of God. God grants us the ability to understand that through his Holy Spirit. And as we learn, we submit, we yield. In 2 Chronicles 1, God offered Solomon anything and Solomon asked for wisdom and God gave it to him. And we're exhorted to do the same. In James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, the Bible says this, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. If you want wisdom, let me tell you how to get it. Ask for it, but then be ready. It's often said that sometimes when we ask God for things, um, we don't really know what we're getting ourselves in for, right? God, please give me patience. How do you think God's going to give you patience? He's going to put you through the fire, right? That's how you learn patience. God, give me wisdom. Well, how are you going to learn wisdom? You're going to have to learn how to fear the Lord, right? Yet the Bible says if you want it, you can have it. Young people, you don't have to wait till you're old to get wisdom. If you want it, you can have it. Ask for it. Is a prayer for the, uh, the, the prayer of wisdom is a prayer for the heart that fears God and obeys God's commands. And if I have a genuine heart and desire for wisdom and I ask it in faith, truly desiring, I should be ready to yield every aspect of my life because if God answers that prayer, he's going to come for it. I'm not going to ask for wisdom, put my head on my pillow and then wake up in the morning wise. It's going to come through the knowledge of the holy. God's going to bring people into your lives to teach you what the word of God says. And then God is going to put you in positions where he's going to ask you to do what the word of God says. So be ready for it. But if you want it, you can have it. First, wisdom is sourced in the fear of God. Second, wisdom is granted by the will of God. Third, wisdom is powerful because it is divine. Solomon tells us that wisdom is greater than the mighty, that the wise man is of more use than 10 men, mighty men to a city, that the wise man can do more with his wisdom than many instruments of war. Why is wisdom so powerful and so capable and so effective? Because it taps into the design of God for the world and aligns itself with it. Wisdom taps into the favor of God through obedience and reverence. If I want to know how something works, how a machine works, the greatest thing I can do is go to the source, go to the person who made it. And it'll tell you how it works. Open up the instructor's manual, which tells you how the machine works and how it's to be operated. Wisdom is your link to the designer. And it tells you how the world is designed, how you're designed, and how to get the most out of you. How to get the most out of this world. And it comes by aligning yourself with the designer. I'm one of those that really likes instructions. I don't always read the instructions, but I like to do things right. I, 
I, I struggle when I'm doing things that aren't according to the instructions because when that happens, I feel like, well, what if, what if this doesn't make it better? What if this makes it worse, right? What if, because it's designed to work a certain way. And so I want it to be the way that it's designed to work because in my mind, that's how it works best. Now, that's not always the case with fallible human, humans, right? Sometimes uh, there, there are people, they're jerry-riggers, my wife being one of them, that, that do a pretty good job of improving upon designs. <laughs> um, and it drives me nuts. But, you know, she does a good job with it usually, so it works out well. But I'm, I, I just, I like instructions and I like things to, to happen the way. That's the idea. Look, we might be able to improve upon that vacuum cleaner, get a little more out of it. We might be able to improve upon that uh, that that car, get a, get a little more horsepower. But when God says this is how things were designed, I made it this way, you can't improve upon that. And when you try to change it, it's just going to make it worse. It's just going to make it worse. Wisdom is identifying the reality that God's way is the way it's supposed to work. And if I identify God's way, then I am tapping into the designer for how this world works. And even if it's something that I don't like, I can trust that if I'm doing it the way the designer wants, that it's what's best. Can we believe that? That's wisdom. Wisdom puts God on your side. Wisdom taps into God's favor. If God be for us, who can be against us? If by wisdom God framed the worlds, if by wisdom God set the universe in motion, if by wisdom God sustains this grand creation, then surely God's wisdom can guide you into a life of success. Surely wisdom is sufficient to bring me the place of success in in life and decisions. And if I want the same results, the same beauty, the same order that we see reflected in the power of God's design and creation, the way to get it is by identifying His Word and by aligning with it. That's wisdom. Tap into it. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace. A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Now you may not see all of these rewards this side of eternity, but note this, throughout the scriptures, God says there is exaltation for the wise, the humble. Point number four. Wisdom is ignored because it is quiet. Wisdom is sourced in the fear of God. Wisdom is granted by the will of God. Wisdom is powerful because it is divine. Wisdom is ignored because it's quiet. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. He who shouts loudest is the one who gets heard. Emotion is often mischaracterized as knowledge. Passion mischaracterized as truth. But a truly wise man, as he follows the heart of God, is both meek and humble. This does not mean he is weak. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. He is not weak. He is deliberate. He is taking his strength and his capacity and he is directing it toward God's ends. This does not make him silent, but it doesn't make him a man who does not need the spotlight. 
In a world of people who are easily swayed by the shiny lights and pretty trappings, the cries and demands of people who know very little about the things of which they speak, or who know enough to know how to misdirect people to sound good, wisdom will often be little more than a whisper in the noise. But if you're listening, it's loud enough to be heard. And it is sufficient to cause everyone else to benefit. Now, the majority of people walk right by the wise man and follow the loud man. That is the nature of this world. He might be passionate, but he speaks as a fool. But we'll gravitate to him because he's loud, because he's boisterous. He's passionate. But don't make this mistake. Now, I'm not saying anybody who speaks loudly. That's not what I'm talking about, right? The point is this. Just because the Bible isn't new or flashy or modern does not make it inferior. Just because truth has been around for a while does not mean that it's old and dusty and needs to be cast off. Just because a church or a pastor isn't on the cutting edge, isn't culturally exciting or relevant, doesn't weaken the wisdom that can be found if he is faithful to the word of God. Wisdom speaks for itself and to those that are willing to hear, it speaks loud and clear. The rest of the world will walk right on by and not hear a thing. But that's only because they're not listening. So listen. Don't be one of those who ignores wisdom because it's not flashy. Young people, flashy is exciting. Exciting is young. That's what it means to be young. I get it. Don't ignore wisdom because it's not flashy. That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes. This is the whole point of the entire book. Solomon saying, learn these lessons from me so that you don't have to make the mistakes yourself. Don't let the noise of the empty promises and lies of this world drown out the steady, consistent, deliberate voice of wisdom crying like a voice in the wilderness. One more point and then we'll close. Wisdom is sourced in the fear of God. Wisdom is granted by the will of God. Wisdom is powerful because it is divine. Wisdom is ignored because it is silent. I should probably make that quiet, not silent. If you're taking notes, maybe quiet would be a better word there. Finally, wisdom is decayed by the presence of sin. Look, the majority of people in here have accepted enough wisdom to have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior by grace through, through faith. You, you have acknowledged wisdom to, to a degree. But like a dead fly in the ointment, every area of your life where you allow sin to enter in and to have a stronghold erodes wisdom in your life. It weakens your capacity. You may have all the knowledge of God you want, but wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is obedience. My children know what I expect. But that doesn't always mean they do it. Wisdom is not them knowing what dad expects of them. Wisdom is them doing what dad expects of them. Solomon was a man granted wisdom. But wisdom faded by his pursuits of vanity. 
for all that he knew about God, for all of the abilities which he had, for all of the success which he found physically, he was corrupted and that folly caused his wisdom to fail and led to star, to, to, to sorrow and spiritual stagnation. Vanity and vexation of spirit is what Solomon calls it. And the question as we close is this. Are you a wise Christian? I hope this is not a discouraging message. The message comes with a warning. But it shouldn't be a discouragement because all of this is on the table for you. It's there for you. It's ours. And not only that, but it's yours if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's step one, right? But not only is it there for you, but God has promised through His Holy Spirit within you to give you the capacity to do it. If only you'll yield your will, right? But have you allowed sin to have some foothold in your life? Like a dead fly in your ointment, spiritually corrupting you and hindering your ability for God's wisdom to flourish. The ointment's still there, but it stinks. Because there's a rotting fly in it. What is it that's decaying the wisdom in your life? Is it anger or resentment or lust or covetousness or lying or intemperance or selfishness or pride? Love of the world? Love of the flesh, love of things, of money, power. These things aren't going to take away how much you know about the Bible. But wisdom is not the fruit of knowledge. It's the fruit of knowledge when applied. It's the fruit of fear and obedience. We can't fake wisdom. The fool will be made known by his actions. I can fake piety. And I can certainly know a lot about the Bible. But I can't fake wisdom. Because it will be borne out in the fruit of my life. And wisdom doesn't just affect you. Parents, wisdom affects your children. Your wisdom will affect your children. Children, your wisdom will affect your families. You make unwise choices, it will affect your parents. It will, it, it, it will affect people. Husbands, your wisdom affects your wife. Wives, your wisdom affects your husband. Church member, your, your wisdom affects your church. Employee, your wisdom will affect your coworkers, your, your business. Solomon warns, one sinner destroyeth much good. Spiritual endeavors can be cut short by a person's sin. In the family, in the church. So do you have wisdom? Do you fear God? Are you living in obedience? Are you living by the manual? That's the call. A call into wisdom. First, joy. It can be yours. Now wisdom. It can be yours too. Next we'll talk truth. That'll be next week. Let's close in prayer.